Hi there today on Terptree's podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have with us a guest today that is not one of the Terptree team. Um, as you know, we've had Debbie and we've had Alice involved in the podcast, but today we have um, Alistair McKenzie, who's the Community Outreach and Engagement Officer for London and the South East, who is from the Houses of Parliament. Um, so maybe you could tell our listeners what you've been doing with our team today. So I've come down to Newbury today to meet Victoria and her team. And what we've been doing is talking about the different ways in which people can get their voice heard in Parliament. Um, we started off just by thinking a little bit about what Parliament is and what its role is. Um, and obviously, uh, it's quite topical at the moment. There's lots of talk about um, where the power lies in the country. Um, and the role of Parliaments uh, very much is to keep government to account and create a, a forum where elected MPs and members of the House of Lords can ask questions of government ministers. So we looked, we looked at that a little bit. But what we really spent most of our time thinking about was the different ways in which you can engage with your local MP, you can engage with members of the House of Lords, and what kind of things they can do on your behalf in Parliament, the kind of questions they can ask, the kind of activities they can get involved with, like uh, select committees, um, debates, and various other activities that go on within Parliament. I mean, it's it's. I want to firstly thank you for coming all the way to Newbury pleasure. from um, busy, hectic London. Probably nice, nice and quiet afternoon. It's a nice, for bit you. Of nice break. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think from where we're coming from in wanting to change the world for deaf people, um, as I've informed you of, we have four key stakeholders. So service providers, those businesses and organisations providing services for deaf people, deaf people themselves, sign language students, and then sign language interpreters. Yes. So for our sort of remit of changing the world for deaf people, um, what you've been talking to us about this afternoon ha could have a massive impact yes. in terms of the fact that each of those four key stakeholders have different needs and have different requirements um, and potentially could have their issues addressed very differently through Parliament. Yeah, absolutely. And then one of the things we've been talking about this afternoon, of course, is, is, is that there are, of course, issues which are specific to the deaf community. There are deaf issues. But there are a whole range of issues that affect deaf people in the same way they affect everyone else in society. And what we've been thinking about is the ways in which the deaf community and some of your stakeholders could engage with some of those things. We looked a little bit at some of the different select committee inquiries that are going on and one of those is about the future of job center plus mm. and among other things it's looking at the provision of tailored support for specific groups within the population and that i would suggest to you and i suggested to you earlier would be an absolutely ideal way for members of the deaf community to get involved with that inquiry when you submit evidence to a select committee inquiry there will be a list of what are called terms of reference that list isn't too long, but it might have about 10 or 11 different things on it. It is not necessary for a member of the public or an organisation to submit evidence about every single one of those points. There might be a specific point that the inquiry is looking at that's really relevant to you and you want them to hear from you. And I should also add that all of the select committees, as indeed Parliament as a whole, are looking to diversify the range of voices they hear from. We are very aware of the fact that it's often the same kind of voices that submit evidence, the same kind of voices that make themselves heard in Parliament. And we're really trying to work hard to broaden that range and make it easier for people with different needs and different backgrounds to engage with what we're doing. Absolutely. I think there, are, there was one sort of fascinating, well, one, there were many fascinating concepts through the afternoon. But one thing that really hit me is there's an assumption that when you're looking to make change or or give your views or ideas or thoughts about a particular process whether that be a bill or whether that be a discussion that's happening within a select committee 
um, the assumption is you're looking for deaf stuff. Mm. I mean, that would mm. be the thought, you know, it's an access to work issue mm. or it's a uh, very specifically about deaf issues or, or in relation to British Sign Language. But actually what, what really sort of woke me up a bit, I guess, is in, in relation to Job, Job Centre Plus, for, for, as an example, yeah. um, deaf people access all the services that you and I access yeah. as hearing people. Therefore, every every issue or every debate that is actually out there being discussed, probably there is an impact or, or an implication on deaf people. So that so I guess that's a joy in the same sense, because I no doubt there are lots of people out there, lots of people who will be listening to this podcast mm. who have an issue or an interest in deafness but actually have an expertise in another area so it could be that they're a sign language student and they work within employment for yeah. example yeah. but they have they've learnt level two sign language so they have an interest in deaf issues they've got some deaf friends mm. to have people like that putting forward evidence and putting putting forward things to places like select committees or writing to their MPs about these particular issues that's really powerful because you're harnessing the interest of the actual the, the main specific topic as you said in this, in this sense Job Centre Plus mm. but with the interest in the understanding of deaf people it gives people probably more of an understanding about how they can get their views their experience and their expertise across the parliament that's correct i think i think for people in the deaf community for example there's probably three levels here of of areas you might want to engage with there are as you as you say deaf stuff there are issues which are deaf specific there have been debates in the house of commons about provision of services for deaf people uh, bsl as a, as a officially recognizing bsl as a british language and so on then there are those policies like the Future of Job Centre Plus, where it's a general, a select committee is looking at that policy in the round, and there are aspects of that policy where there's, a, if you like, a deaf dimension. You know, um, yes, I'm going to use Job Centre Plus, just the same as a hearing person, but because I am deaf, there's certain things you need to take into yeah. account. And there's a third level, which is that you as a deaf person might be really agitated or activated or inspired or angry about an issue just the same as a hearing person with no deaf dimension yeah. so you might particularly have a very strong view about fracking or you might have a very strong view about what's going on within the health service uh, in terms of funding or in terms of, of cuts so what we want to try to do is both to encourage people to submit evidence and have their say with their MP if it's something that's a specific need that they have but we also as an institution want to make it as easy as possible for everybody to get their voice heard on any issue that matters to them. And so that's one of the reasons why we were looking at this earlier. Some um, select committees are looking at taking evidence uh, in BSL and are actually putting out calls for evidence in BSL. And we want to carry on improving the provision that we make through our website, through our communications, to make sure that everybody has as much access as possible to the business and the decisions and the discussions that are going on within Parliament. Absolutely. Um, I think a, a major part of that as well that's probably a part that not many people are aware of is how they can actually go about that. And we talked obviously earlier about the different remits for ways things are discussed within Parliament. Mm. But you also gave us clear examples about how people could actually bring those issues, for example, to their MP. Yeah. And I think one point that really came across was making sure that you're asking maybe for a particular aim or a particular action so that you're asking for something specific so to go to your MP and say well I'm not happy because deaf people don't get access to sign language interpreters in the UK mm. is far too wide-ranging mm -hmm. to get any real proper activity happening but if you're going to if you're saying for example well when I recently went to hospital and I, I just had a baby when I went to A&E they didn't even bother to call the interpreter and this is a problem not just for me but deaf yeah. women all around yeah. the UK more and more just as a, a general example um, so could you talk more about that process and how to 
because I'm, I'm thinking based on what we've talked about this afternoon, whether you're contacting an MP or whether, as you suggested, you're speaking to someone on Twitter, whether they're a Lord or whether they're a Bishop or whether, however they're going into the, the process, it is about that specificity and making sure that you're asking for something very, very precise as opposed to being general. I think that's really helpful. You know, I mean, there will be occasions, obviously, where there's a broad issue where people want to make their views known. So if you think about the vote about military action in Syria last year, it was very controversial. Lots of people wanted to make their views known about that. But by and large, I think engaging with your MP is a good idea to have a specific aim in mind. It's a good idea to think about what is the issue that's important? What's the aspect of the issue that I would like some change made uh, on that issue? Um, what do I want? What's the outcome that I would like? But you've also got to think about what your MP can or can't do about it. So there's some things you want to think about before you even go to your MP. Is it something to do with the council? Have you actually got an issue with what's been provided at a local level by the local council? In which case, do go and speak to your councillor first. Is it an issue where the MP can ask a question of government in Parliament? Is it something that your MP has already taken an interest in? And if not, are there other things your MP's taken interested in that dovetail with your issue? So your MP may not have expressed any previous knowledge or interest in the deaf community, but they might have spoken in a lot of debates about the provision uh, of care for mothers, or they might have talked about hospital and health-related NHS issues. So that issue about uh, BSL provision for deaf mothers, you could say, well, I know you've spoken about the provision of care in hospitals before. This is a different aspect of that, but I think it's really important. So you might be thinking, listening to me speak, well, that's all very well, but how do I find any of that out? So what we were doing earlier was we went onto the Parliament website, which is uh, at www.parliament.uk. And on the homepage, on that page, there's a box where you can enter in your postcode and it will tell you not only who your MP is, but it will tell you what kind of issues they're interested in. It will allow you to see whether they're a member of a select committee it will also allow you to have a look at the last times they've spoken in Parliament and what kind of issues they've spoken about and where they've submitted questions in writing as well. So you can very quickly get a good overview of what kind of things motivate your MP. The other thing you will find there is that all of their contact details, their email address, their telephone number, whether they're on Twitter or not. So my advice to anybody who wants to raise an issue with a, within Parliament is to start with your MP have a look at their page on the website, get a sense of what kind of things motivate them and have a think about how you want to contact them. You might want to write to them first. You might want to go and see them in person and MPs will run surgeries where you can meet them in person and you can find out details about that on their own website and you'll be able to find a link to their website through their biography page on the Parliament website. And one thing we're noticing more and more, um, and it's something you touched on earlier, was the use of e-petitions and yes. how powerful um, they have become generally and it, in the sense that previously you could get as little as and it is as little as if you consider the mm. wider UK population 100,000 people to sign a petition mm. then it would automatically go into be discussed mm. or to be questioned or debated mm. um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the recent change in Certainly. the sense of the the lower number of of necessary um, people signing up to petitions yeah. so as you say Victoria until 2015 until the general election 2015 the system worked um the action that would come from an e-petition would be if it reached 100,000 signatures. Now, at that point, it would be considered for a debate. In, in real terms, it usually would be debated at 100,000 signatures. What has happened since the 2015 general election is we've set up a brand new committee 
it's called the Petitions Committee. And what that committee does is it looks at all the petitions on the e-petition site. And it, I suppose you could say it looks at the merits of those petitions, not in a political way, but it looks at whether it thinks further action is necessary. And it looks at that regardless of whether they've had 100,000 signatures. So very recently we had a petition um, to do with treatment for people with brain tumours and that got 30,000 signatures and the petitions committee looked at it and realised that there'd been no debate in parliament about that for 10 years and they felt that it was long overdue there were a lot of developments in the science and medicine in, in that field and so they made sure there was a debate on that in the House of Commons. Um, but it can go beyond that and one of the things the committee is doing is looking where it a petition might be a suitable subject for a select committee inquiry or it be looking at whether it's worth bringing in the minister for a one-off evidence session so in a nutshell the petitions committee is looking at all those petitions and deciding you know this is an issue that isn't attracting thousands and thousands of signatures but it is actually quite significant for us a significant section of the population what's the most appropriate thing we can do with this and it's not always going to be a debate sometimes actually getting a, a minister in or having a one-off uh, evidence session might be a better way forward than having a debate. And in terms of because in terms of petition, petitions there there are obviously um, ways and means by setting up e-petitions but there are other organisations that run the ability to there set are. petitions up. What happens with those petitions? Are those still engaged <coughs> with Parliament in the same premise? Or? So you will be familiar with organisations like 38 Degrees, yeah. Change.org. So sometimes they will use the petitioning process to imprint members, you know, encourage everybody to submit something which will be sent on to their own MP. Sometimes they will use the scale of the petition to so two million people have signed our petition. Um, and I'm not in any way, shape or form, you know, they are a, a valid and valuable way of making your voice heard on, on an issue. But those petitions are not connected specifically to anything that goes on within Parliament. Now, you might want a petition that's addressed directly to the government, and that's what 38 Degrees might be doing. E-petitions within the parliamentary structure, it's all about generating activity in Parliament. And the reason it's all about generating activity in Parliament goes back to what I said at the beginning, that Parliament is the national forum for holding government to account. So everything that happens in Parliament is all about getting a response from the government, challenging the government, getting the government to explain themselves, getting the government to be clear on what their aims and policy objectives are and where necessary making recommendations about how they might do those things differently. So the beauty of the parliamentary petition system is, is directly connected to that process in a way those other petitions aren't. As I say, there's nothing wrong with those other petitions and there are lots and lots of examples of campaigns that have used many different formats they've used parliamentary activity they've used marches they've used direct action they've used online petitions from other sources a very good example of that would be uh, the campaigners justice for the 96 on the hillsborough tragedy who used a huge range mm. of, of activities but among those activities one of them was an e-petition on the parliament website which generated a debate in the house of commons that debate did not make justice for the 96 come about but it was pretty much the last step in the process to government finally releasing a lot of the documents that had not been released before and a lot of campaigners saw the value of having that debate and it actually there were some very powerful and emotional speeches that took place during that debate so I think the e-petition system engaging with parliament more generally can be really really valuable ways for campaigners to get government to listen when perhaps it's more difficult to get them to listen and would you suggest that streams of 
streams of strategy are worthwhile considering. Like you said yeah. with the example you just gave, if yeah. you're putting in an e-petition to alongside that do numbers of other activities yeah. that are that because I guess the reality is you want to get your message to to Parliament um, A- absolutely and I mean you know there's all sorts of variables there I mean clearly you know the Justice the 96 campaign they had to campaign for years they faced a lot of mm. uh, barriers uh, a lot of uh, sort of people stonewalling them this is will vary from campaign to campaign and and you may have a very specific objective um so we talked a little bit about this idea of provision for bsl uh, interpreters to those to, to women using maternity services that's a very specific goal and it might be that the best course of action there is to engage with the mp get questions asked to a government department and see if you can get change moving in that way um it may be that you're looking at a much broader campaign so i worked with a deaf campaign group before who were looking to get bsl recognized as second as an official british language that's a much broader campaign and then you might want to start doing other activities you might want to start doing media campaigns you might want to start uh, doing um, you know awareness raising you might want to look at how you do that on a local level you might want to do it how you spread it more nationally so there's there's a the strategy is going to be very much determined by what you want to happen and I think what I would say about engaging with Parliament is pretty much big or small in any campaign I would at least want to be considering what might my MP do here um, but looking at some of those other kind of streams of work it really depends on what kind of scale of campaign you're trying to run or how big the changes you want to affect. And can you tell us a little bit about the most recent Spit the Dummy campaign in terms of what your yeah just your your viewpoint on the campaign as a whole? Well that was a really interesting one I guess it was probably the Spit the Dummy campaign that, that was the first group of deaf campaigners that mm. I had welcomed into Parliament and it's the first group of deaf campaigners I'd done a session with and I worked very closely with a woman called Lauren Harris who gave me some really good ideas about how we might make that session work and we were able to get a BSL interpreter along to that session. But in a nutshell, it was very similar to the session that we've just done here at Tertiary. It was really just looking at some of those key ways to engage. One of the things that came out of that, though, I was really pleased about was that um, there is a process that goes on in the House of Commons uh, where uh, MPs put their names forward into a ballot um, to take a part of private member's bill into the House of Commons. Um, and that happens every year. It just happened in May. Uh, MPs put their names forward. There is a literal ballot, and uh, it's now done uh, live on the website. You can watch <laughs> uh, one of our deputy speakers, who very much enjoys himself, pulling a little like the lottery ball, numbers, like the lottery numbers or the <laughs> FA Cup draw. And what you end up with is a list of twenty or so MPs um, in numerical order who can bring a private members' bill into the House of Commons. And usually on a Friday is when we discuss private members' bills. The higher up the list you are the more chance you have of your bill getting a serious amount of time to be debated. So on this occasion, when I did a, a session with the Spit the Dummy campaign, we were about three or four weeks away from the state opening of Parliament, so a few years ago. I told them about this process and said, you know, you might want to keep an eye on it because they were very enthusiastic about the idea of a BSL bill. So they did look at the process and about seventh or eighth number out of the hat was an MP, he's not an MP anymore, called Malcolm Bruce. And they had done quite a lot of work with Malcolm Bruce in the past. And he was a keen supporter of uh, deaf issues. And so they contacted his office and said, we have a bill. We have a BSL bill. Would you be prepared to take that forward as your private member's bill? And he said yes. 
um, many MPs put their names into that ballot without having a bill to hand and then campaigners will then approach them afterwards. So having knowledge of when those things are coming up can be really, really useful and it really paid off for the Spit the Dummy campaign and uh, although that bill didn't become law, it's still the document still exists and they could bring that forward with another member in future and every time you bring a bill like that forward you generate more discussion and debate and it's more likely that it will eventually end up, if not being passed itself, then it incorporated into another bill that's going through. That's what I was going to ask actually, um, leading on from that, if there is if there is a debate for example that you bring to your MP, your MP decides to um, bring that to Parliament and they raise the question, hmm. how would you then consequently follow that up if you decided that you felt that you've, you've watched how that's been hmm. answered and responded to but actually you, you don't quite feel that they've hit the nail on the head in terms of how they've answered your question, it's not quite got to where you want it to get to, how would you follow that up that's a really good question and i think one of the things that we're very keen to stress is having an mp ask a question having a debate take place often is not the end of the story it might be it might produce the result you want but you know that's not typical so you've sometimes got to realize that you're in it for the medium to long haul um, I've been doing some work recently with the cystic fibrosis trust and they're campaigning on access uh, for sufferers with cystic fibrosis to a drug called Orcambi. And Orcambi is very important for people with cystic fibrosis, but it is quite an expensive drug. Um, before Christmas, they were able to get a debate um, in the House of Commons about access to medicines for people suffering from rare diseases, uh, one of which is cystic fibrosis. Orcambi was discussed and debated. The minister uh, listened and made some very positive comments, but ultimately it was a decision for a body called NICE, who you've probably come across. Mm -hmm. A few weeks ago, NICE made the decision not to grant access to Orcambi, but it's not the end of the story. And the reason it's not the end of the story is that NICE used particular rules for introducing drugs, which the Cystic Fibrosis Trust feel are not appropriate for people with cystic fibrosis. So the next stage of their campaigns, they, they're going to encourage people with cystic, cystic fibrosis and their families and friends to write to their MPs to ask questions about this and raise it in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. That may in turn then generate another debate about how those rules might be changed. And then hopefully that can lead to a change in the rules that would allow that drug to be brought out. So it's a process very often and it's about thinking about which are the techniques, which are the the, the, the different tools you have in engaging with your MP that are going to be useful. You might be using those as an individual, might be using them as an individual who's part of a group or an organisation or is working with a group or an organisation. And one of the things I think is really important is to identify what the changes that you want mm. specifically. And I would also say it's really useful if you can work together either within a, a charity, within a campaign group like Spit the Dummy. And coordinate your actions so you've got people from different parts of the country working with their own MPs. Um, working on your own can sometimes achieve results but if you've got a group or an organisation behind you it's you, you know you're going to have a bit more clout especially when doing things like select committees. I think. I, I think that's the key takeaway really it's it's probably for me it's understanding widely what's happening in Parliament, um, what select committees are talking about, what bills are about to be passed, what draft bills there might be sitting there waiting that might have some relevance um, and, and thinking about how you're going to best address them or how the best how the best way to sort of approach the particular that's, situation is. That's absolutely right and, and of course for an individual keeping track of all that can be very very yes. difficult and time consuming and that's why it's really good to be plugged into these groups and organisations. So to go back to the Cystic Fibrosis Trust, they have a team of staff who do that work. Yeah. 
And so what they then do is they work with people like me to inform people within the CF community, these are the campaigns we're running, these are the issues that are going on right now, this is what we would like you to do. And there are quite a lot of groups and organisations that work like that. And where you could, as an individual can come in is by knowing about your own MP, knowing how to contact them, so that when a group or a campaign group you work with tap you on the shoulder and say, we want you to contact your own MP about this, you know how to do that yep. and you know the best way to do that. Um, it's certainly the case that groups and organisations can provide a kind of a pro forma for people. And that happens a lot and there's nothing wrong with that. But I would say MPs are much more likely to respond to you if you can at least include some information about your own viewpoint and your own story. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't, you have to abandon the idea of using a pro forma if you're nervous about writing something. If you're nervous about writing a lot, don't worry because MPs don't want big long essays. You know, what they want is the key points. What's the issue? Why is it important to you? Why should it be important to them? Because it might be, it might dovetail with an interest they've already got. What would you like them to do? Would you like them to ask a question about it? Would you like them to speak to the local council? Would you like them to get involved in a local campaign? So if you can kind of think about those four points, what's the issue? Why does it matter to you? Why might it matter to the MP? What do you want them to do? then that's the sort of knowledge that you need as an individual so that if your organisation comes to you and says we're doing a campaign on this you can kind of get into action and know okay I know who my MP is I know how to contact them I'm going to go and speak to them first hand I'm going to email them or whatever. Absolutely and I think if you're more aware of the process clearly you've got a better chance of being heard than maybe other people that are Definitely. campaigning on different issues and that's not to suggest that those other you're, you're trying to outwin anyone but the point is if you if you're adamant that your issue needs to be addressed then you need to be making your you need to be put it's, it's like a job interview you wouldn't go to a job interview completely unprepared yeah. having not dressed properly not preparing not reading about what the company does you just wouldn't do that so it's the same it's just all all of these things in life are just about understanding the process and doing what they're asking you to do and then you've got a better chance of that being recognized that, and, and followed through that's absolutely true and i think the other thing is that mps are you know they're a lightning rod and they get bombarded with communications to the public, a lot of which is that just people are very upset or angry. Mm. And that's you know perfectly legitimate. But you may have some specific concern in mind where they can actually get involved and do something. And don't forget, most MPs have gone into that job because they want to make a difference. Yep. That's why they're there. And the thing that's very difficult for an MP is if they're getting you know a wall of noise and it's just people are very unhappy but they don't know exactly what mm. it is whereas if you give them right this is a problem yep. but I want you to do this about it then they can seize on that and they can pick up on it and do something then you're you know you're kind of helping them in a way you know it's, it's you're, you're meeting them on their own turf it's what they want to do uh, and so as you say it's not about a competition between different concerns it's actually about articulating yes absolutely so they're clear and you're clear on what you would like them to do about it. And then, that, and then you, that conversation can start between you and their caseworker or you and that member of how do we take this forward. I would imagine one of the challenges in your job is about breaking down those barriers of assumptions that people have about MPs and MPs taking no action. But mm. uh, like, like you've just explained, partly that might be due to the fact that if you're approaching your M MP being angry or upset mm. or and there's no real, there's no real focus point that you're putting across other than your upset and anger then that's not going to that's not going to constitute any action happening anyway I think so. that's the crucial point yeah I think MPs know people are going to be angry and yep. upset and and people are frequently legitimately entitled yes, to be angry absolutely. and upset but for an MP they need to know what you would like them to do about it 
you know, because otherwise they're just going to sit there and think, well, this is a terrible story that you're telling me, but what do you want me to do? And so you need to think about that. What's the specific outcome that you would like from, from, from that sort of interaction? And it's like you said earlier, MPs want that voice to be heard. They want to be given this these this bits of information that they can take through to Parliament yeah. if there are issues that are really, really affecting their constituents. Yeah. They want to be able to do that. So all you're really wanting to do is help them along with that process, which gives you more chance to be heard. Absolutely. I mean, we haven't got this data yet, but we're actually, believe it or not, we've been doing some work looking at um, the, the, the literal numbers of times MPs in the House of Commons use the words my constituent yep. and my constituency. <laughs> And I can tell you already from what I've heard, it's an awful lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, contacting your MP, you are their constituent. You are their constituent, whether you voted for them or not, whether you voted. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes you might assume, well, my MP won't be interested because they're in a party that I didn't vote for or I disagree with them on a particular subject. But actually talking to them as a constituent, explaining your story, explaining the issue and what you'd like them to do. I've seen that many, many times has generated results where people weren't expecting it and ultimately if you don't get anywhere with your MP and you do end up wanting to engage with a member of the House of Lords or another parliamentarian the first question they'll ask you is have you spoken to your own MP and the reason for that is that MPs are very and members of the Lords are very aware of the fact that MPs are elected to represent their constituency and they don't want to tread on someone else's toes so they want to know that your MP knows that you've raised the issue and that you're going to go and raise the issue somewhere else before you do that. Once you've done that, that's fine. Yeah, and, and off you go. Um, but they will ask you if you've contacted your own MP first. Well, it's like you said earlier, with 70,000 people to serve um, in each constituency, you know, they can't be this whole round robin of contacting people randomly unless it's really ne necessary Absolutely. to do that. You suggested Absolutely. other examples that that might be necessary in terms of if someone in particular was sitting on a select committee and right. you would contact them and state that I'm contacting you in your role of yes, so a chair of this particular select so committee. So sometimes groups, particularly groups, occasionally individuals, think, well, I think a s the, the select committee on work and pensions should look at this issue. To get a select committee to look at an issue requires communicating with that committee. You can do that either through talking to the staff or, as you say, you might write to the chair of that committee and write to them in that capacity. Uh, select committee chairs take that on board as part of their work as well as their constituency work and they acknowledge that there will be people contacting them for select committee business. Um, so yeah, that's one occasion where you might write to somebody else. But we talked a little bit earlier about all party parliamentary groups and there are many of these and they meet on a variety of different topics and you may also seek to communicate with an all-party group and get in touch with the members on that group and that's that's something you can do. The only thing I'd say about all-party groups is that unlike select committees they're not official business of the House so some of them are very active and some of them are not. I want to say thank you so much for coming to Terptree HQ and meeting Real with our team today. Oh Lovely. thank you really um, and thank you for being the first official guest on our oh, podcast other than us very as here as a team. <laughs> um, lastly just to finish on what would you say are the top tips for people if you had to say there are three top tips putting you on the spot now. Mm, three top tips. <laughs> um, do your homework make sure you know what kind of things your MP uh, is interested in and spoken about and that's very easy to do by going to the Parliament website and using your postcode to find their details. Keep it simple. So when you approach anybody, if you write to an MP, if you write to a member of the House of Lords, if you write to a select committee and give written evidence, keep it straightforward and simple. 
use the facts. So if you've got data, use the data. If you've got good stories, stories are important because they enable members to understand the issues and understand what how it's impacting on people. Um, but don't over don't bombard them. Don't overload them with information. If it's something they want to look at in more detail, then they can always come back to you and ask for more information. But what you want to do in the initial instance is get their attention. And the best way to do that is keep it simple. Third tip. Um, Hmm. I think work with other people who share your interests as much as you can. You can coordinate action between different members. Um, you know, so your member might not be so helpful, but someone in another part of the country or a neighbouring part of the country might be more interested. So if you work together with people, you know, other interpreters, other people within other deaf campaigns, coordinating your action just gives you a lot more options um, and it can also mean you know it's you've got more bite not bites to the cherry but more opportunities to get the things you want to get the questions asked to get those debates held if you're if you're using a group of 20 people all using their own MPs then you're going to have a higher strike rate than it's just you working with your own MP so if you can work with others do because you'll, you'll get better results absolutely and just a second that I think you can see by the the activity that happened through the spit the dummy campaign right, exactly. and also the recent access to work submissions through the select committee yeah. um those were really really engaged with the community in terms of not just engaging deaf people but mm. engaging people that were either related to deaf people or involved with deaf community mm. but also involving sign language interpreters because certainly with the access to work um select committee discussion that was focused on the whole range of people that work with de with deaf people including right. sign language interpreters so just to second that really um so i hope this podcast has been really really informative um not just through to um people that provide services for deaf people but for deaf people themselves just so that you're aware listening to this podcast we will be reproducing this information into bsl to make it fully accessible for all of our um, stakeholders so i hope that you can use this information and take those key things that you really want to make change um, happen and if you want any guidance or information about that um, contact parliament directly there are if you go on the parliament website as um, alistair showed me today you can find all of these different groups there are really clear explanations it will take you through all of these different places um, and feel free to ping us an email over at hello at terptree.co.uk have a lovely day and we'll see you next week on the podcast